0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stephen Stanley. Stephen is a singer-songwriter who is probably best known as a founding member, lead guitarist, and vocalist for The Lowest of the Low, a highly acclaimed Toronto-based indie rock band. Their 1991 debut album, Shakespeare My Butt, remains one of the best-selling independent releases in Canadian music history. But the hits and the pressures that came with that fame took the band on a relentless and ultimately Band Fracturing Tour Schedule. Stephen ultimately spent about 23 years with The Lowest of the Low, with a few breaks and a few breakups mixed in there. But he's back on the Canadian music scene with his own band, the aptly named Stephen Stanley Band, and their newest album is called Before the Collapse of the Hive. Welcome, Stephen, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. And um, I'm
1: on Wolf Island, so I've recently moved out of Toronto. I'm now living on Wolf Island, which is uh, just off the coast of Kingston on Lake Ontario.
0: Wolf Island is a ferry ride away from Kingston, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe you'll exactly. share. How did you end up living there, and, and how do you like it?
1: I guess it was a long process, but I made my last two records here with a producer named Chris Brown. And where I'm sitting right now, I'm looking at uh, his house. So I'm living next door to him right now. Um, and so far, so good. You know, it's it's a big change, and it's a big life change. In the sense that I've spent a lot of time here over since 2016, we met, we started, I think the first record we made here, which was called Jimmy and the Moon, we started making in the fall of 2016. So that was my first sort of, I'd been here before many times for this the security hockey tournament that happens with musicians hockey tournament, but it was when we started making records that I started to get to know the place
0: quite well. Now, of course, Prince Edward County has famously been ruined by Trontonians is will is well finally on its way to being uh, ruined as well or how is things over there
1: as as it as it stands right now there's you know there really isn't it's a small population especially in the winter I'm told it's a tough winter here I think the the county's probably a little easier there's not a lot of commerce on the island at all to begin with one major change that's about to happen is they, there's a new ferry that's now on the water and at some point in the spring it'll start coming into the village. I think that will change things. I think more people will start looking into real estate and, and you know, hopefully it doesn't change things too much. It's nice that there's, just for instance, Chris Brown, who produced uh, my last two records, he bought, with a partner, bought the hotel Wolf Island, which is just down the street from us, has turned it into a world-class music venue. It's a great place to eat, to hang out, to all kinds of things happen there, all kinds of community things and music-based things. And I think one of the reasons they did that was to try to keep it away from developers who might, cha- you know, turn that plot of land into a condo. It's it's nice to think that there's parts of Ontario that can sort of stay untouched, and ungentrified. I mean, I know eventually something's going to change and that might be after my time. So, well, you know, I'm not taking any credit for this. I just kind of like the way it is right now. And at, it, it certainly is a big plot of land. It can take more people for sure. The question is, what does that change as far as the infrastructure?
0: Oh, like you say, so far so good, and we'll see what that uh, very connection brings. Now, as noted, your brand new album is called Before the Collapse of the Hive. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Where are you in the uh, cycle of uh, promoting and touring behind its release? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So it came out in mid-November,
1: and as as a sort of close to the end of the year record, I think for me, it, because the pandemic had slowed us down in making it, we, as I said, we made it on the Island. I was living in Toronto then there were two major stoppages because of the pandemic where one of them was nine months long where we couldn't, couldn't uh, be here at all. So it really slowed the process down. What happened that was nice for me is it also introduced about six songs that wouldn't have been on the record had we have made it without a pandemic of like, I, I think, um, some things got replaced by other things that I'm a little more happy with and, uh, it made for a very cohesive message that sort of wrapped around that title. Um, but as far as the promotion and touring, I mean, doing what we can <laughs> promote show, it's a tough world out there. Uh, we're we're going to leave any sort of major touring until late winter, early spring. We've done a few shows so far that have been wonderful. We did a show in Toronto at the Redwood Theater that was a just a complete uh, pleasure of a night. And then we did one on Wolf Island and then I've done some other, um, my guitar player and I do spot shows all over the place, so we've got a, we did a few last weekend and one more this weekend at uh Sauce on Danforth in Toronto. But the big stuff will happen later and I I you know as an indie artist you want your album to have a bit of longevity. You don't want it just to be a two weeks and uh, so it's it's a hopefully it's a process that keeps going. We love playing live. That's pretty much the only place you can
0: actually survive as a musician these days. So well, before we talk more about the Stephen Stanley band, let's please go all the way back, get this Stephen Stanley story. Okay. Where were you born, and and please describe your upbringing? For sure, I was born in Toronto um, at St.
1: Mike's Hospital. Uh, I was the first of three three kids um, born in the uh, in the early '60s, and my parents settled in Thorncliffe Park, and they actually both still live there. And I grew up in Thorncliffe Park. Spent a lot of time in the East End. Two daughters born in the East End. Um, that relationship ended a couple of years ago but not with my daughters. My daughters are great. <laughs> I've cut my daughters off from this lucrative music uh, music empire that I've built. Uh no, they're they're um one in Toronto now, one in Montreal and uh I grew up in Thorncliffe Park had a pretty pretty normal childhood with with some great friends and uh a lot of road hockey and things like that. Played minor minor sports was terrible at sports and then picked up a guitar around the age of 15 and started and took lessons at a place called the Donby Club, which was in Thorncliffe Park. And my mom inadvertently signed me up for a senior citizen's uh, guitar course. And I was 15. And I went to the first one and was like, whoa. And then I decided that I was going to stay. And I stayed for all 10 weeks and learned how to play guitar. The first bit of my learning how to play guitar was with five or six people that were in their 70s. And it was a pretty great experience watching people sort of just enjoy music. You know, none of them were thinking, oh, this is going to be my career. They were just doing it for fun. And I think that really instilled something in me that made music something that I look at as pure fun, as pure like, joy.
0: That's excellent. Well, two shout outs. I'm also a St. Mike's boy. And yeah, right. we were just we we're just down at the Massey All for a concert, which as you'll recall, faces St. Mike's. So it was interesting to see it still standing there. And the other shout out, you also did lessons at Dave Snyder Music. That's right,
1: with Guitar Wayne, and I hope he's still out there somewhere. Again, like my guitar lesson history was short. Like I did the nine weeks with that first group, and I think I did a year with Guitar Wayne, and then I took it uh, took it internally and took it. I basically would come home from school and spend my evenings in my room playing along to Tom Petty records. And it's one thing to know chords and to be able to play there's a big to me anyways there's a, a big demystification happens when you sit down with music you love and you go ah that's that's not actually not that hard to play there's only so many chords you've got to play them and there and you just need the nuance and then then you start to develop that and then everything changes when you get in a room and play with other people and I was lucky to play with some really great uh players all through my youth and up through uh you know my 20s and 30s my first band which was called the dead beats was, uh, with a guy named Andy Koyama who ended up producing, uh, the lowest, of the lowest first record Shakespeare for my butt. And he's now a top line, uh, film music mixer in California and mixes like, oh, I mean, you name a movie, he's probably involved in it. So I was lucky, you know, I think, I think that's real. And I mean that sincerely because I think you fall in with the right people that are also as motivated as you are, it changes everything. And I think that doesn't, it doesn't always go that way for, you know, everybody. And I, so that's why I say there's a lot of luck involved in, in the formative years of being, becoming a musician.
0: Now you are a 1982 graduate of Leeside High School and then yeah. on to the University of Toronto where you worked part-time as an usher at Massey Hall. Yeah. Do you remember any particular performances you
1: enjoyed while on duty? Oh boy. Massey Hall was another one of those, the best things that ever happened to me. So, if you want to talk about performances, that stood out from those days. So I mean, you have to remember, and like, and this is the '80s, and there wasn't a lot of venues that size in Toronto. There's a whole bunch of places now, which is lovely. But Massey Hall for that size was kind of the only only game in town at that point. And um, I so we get to see everything. And it was the beauty of Massey Hall is they paid us almost nothing. They paid us seven dollars cash a night, which is which ridiculous. Sounds ridiculous, but. They allowed us to see sound checks. They allowed us to stay for the shows. There there was never... It wasn't like, oh, we need to hide the staff away. There was actually a row at the back of the balcony that was designated for staff. And so, except for Bob Dylan, who hired his own crew to keep us out of the sound check, I saw every... I was just soaking it all in. But as performances go, the police on the Zenyatta Mandata tour squeeze on... Um, Oh, it was the album after RG Bargy, it was probably one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. It was mind blowingly good. What else? There's like, there's so much. I mean, I saw Gordon Lightfoot probably four times a year for all those five, six years. And those transcended like sort of amazing shows when he was bang on. And it also was part of the part of his life where things were a bit rough for him with alcohol. And uh, I remember one of the years, though, every night, he was like reading his lyrics off a music stand and just really just kind of barely getting through it. But he was so loved. It didn't matter. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously a hard time for him, but, uh, he, he came through that. And, and, you know, as we know, he played for a lot of, a lot of years after the eighties. Oh, you know what? I guess I have to tell you this quick story because this was my book. So Luciano Pavarotti played Massey Hall while I was an usher there. And my boss came to me before the show and said, I've got a special assignment for you. And there were two hundred seats. On the stage behind Luciano, and I got to be the usher on the stage for those two hundred. So I was on the stage behind Luciano Pavarotti as he was singing his arias. At the end of the show, my boss again comes to me and just kind of standing at the stage door. Luciano's gone off, and they know he's coming back out for another sort of curtain call bow. He says, "Once he comes out, give him this," and he hands me a bouquet of roses that I swear to you, was from my toes to my chin. It was the biggest thing I've ever seen. And I had to go on stage and give roses to Luciano Pavarotti. And I got his autograph from my mom afterwards, too. So that was pretty fun. And and seven bucks. And seven bucks. <laughs> I know. It's like... <laughs> I told you, I'm lucky. Uh, yeah, so, but Bessie Hall with Lois of the Low was, was a completely surreal experience. We uh, had so much fun that day. It was, um, you know... My my friend who uh, passed away a few years back, Dave Bookman, introduced us, and it was one of the most heartfelt things I've ever heard in my life. It was just so beautiful. The audience responded in kind; they were on their feet for the whole show. It was a wonderful show. My daughters were right in the second row in front of me, which was what made it all the more special for me. Yeah, it just it just oh, and we had a an Australian band that we'd known for years called Weddings Parties Anything opened, and in their set that they they played that night, which we We were, Ron, Dave, and I were backing them up as their backing band. They asked us to leave for one song. We didn't know what was going to happen. Standing on the side of the stage, and they did this song that I don't think they've ever recorded, but it was all about meeting us for the first time at Lee's Palace in Toronto. And it was just, I mean, it was just mind-blowing to have that happen. And uh, yeah, it was just a perfect night. And then we we went, after the show, we went to uh, Graffiti's in Kensington Market and partied till the sun came up. So it
0: was a real good night. (laughs) Great experience. Now let's talk about Lois Hello. You spent a grand total, 23 years in that band from 1990 to 2013, with, as I said, a couple of breaks and breakups in between. So let's start in 1990. I understand you formed the Lois Hello out of the ashes of a group called Popular Front. That's true.
1: Ron uh, Hawkins and Dave Alexander and I had a band called Popular Front, that I think at that point had grown to like a, a seven or nine piece band. We were trying everything. Just to get some traction, we knew we kind of we knew that the songs were good and that we were certainly players, but nothing was happening. And I think that was at that moment we sort of thought, well, maybe it's maybe it's us. We maybe shouldn't be playing together, so we're we're gonna probably call it quits. But before we did, Ron had written I think um you know probably two thirds of the songs that ended up being shaped by my butt, and decided that we would go into his basement and just try to record them with two acoustic guitars and a snare drum. A tape which is, I think, at least partially lost now. There are, there are some of the songs from that Remain um, that they may have. I'm not sure. But but we did that and then started playing in that formation live. Ron had been the bass player in Popular Front. He moved to guitar. At this point, we were just playing sort of as an acoustic thing. And we were hitting open stages like free times. And uh, we landed at a place soon after that. A guy named John Arnott joined on bass And then we landed at this place called the Blue Moon on Bloor and did this cycle of five shows a week, once a month for about nine months. And that went from like zero to a million and just, and all of a sudden we were like one of the sort of toasted live bands in town and people wanted to see us. And then after that, it was just, it just became a crazy roller coaster. We went on the road with um, a British band called the Jazz Butcher and everything started to explode across Canada too. And as you probably know, CfMY was playing that record like there was no tomorrow for two years we were the most played Canadian band on the station. and that also was playing into Buffalo. so it just created this entire massive audience that wanted to see us play and it, it we, we would joke often because it literally like you know you people would say, well, you maybe shouldn't shouldn't do another show in Toronto. there was literally no number of shows that would would hurt us in Toronto. We could just in those days from, 90 to 94 we could
0: play you know three times a week in toronto and it didn't matter it was big local radio support yeah. word of mouth and you were playing upwards of 250 shows a year yeah. during the height of success Stephen. when you look back can you even believe you were touring that extensively and playing that many shows it is hard to believe it's hard to believe from the point of view of
1: just you know having a life outside of that you know and then to add to those shows we were a band that when we were in town, we probably rehearsed four or five times a week, and then there was making records inside of that too. So, it was probably to our detriment that we spent that much time together in the early days. I mean, not probably; it definitely was. It just, it, it just, it brought it to its first conclusion a lot faster. And you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We probably should have done that a little bit differently, but you know, I don't have any regrets. I, I think, I think it needed to stop right when it did, just because I think somebody might have got hurt if it didn't. Just because it was really people were really everybody was dealing with the not I I don't like the word fame but the success of it and the the rigors of it differently and I think it was taking a toll for sure but yeah I you know no I can't believe because I think I, I think you really have to contextualize that with what the touring scene was in those days and how there was this corridor between Toronto and Victoria where you could do three nights in Calgary you could do two nights in Edmonton and Three nights in Banff and and or Jasper and did they all make sense? Most of the shows were good. I mean, when you when you hit a ski town in the off season, that was always a problem. But you would just be playing basically to make your way across across the country. So if you spent Monday to Wednesday in Jasper and if those shows weren't great, it meant that the Thursday, Friday, Saturday and whatever Calgary or Edmonton was going to be fantastic. So yeah, the numbers weird just because I know. What the demands are in doing that, and how much you're away from home, and how much you're traveling. I was a bit of a road rat. I liked, I liked it. I liked being home too. I could really shut off the the party valve once I got home, so I didn't really have a problem. The the problem that some of the guys had with substances. I mean, I certainly part- partook when we were on the road, but I wouldn't sort of carry the party on when I got home to that extent. And I think that kind of that kind of preserved me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you certainly played a lot, but you even could have played more. You had no business plan, and in fact, you turned down opening tour slots for both the Bare Naked Ladies yeah. and Brian Adams. Yeah. Why? And the one that the
1: one that got me the most is we turned down a, a, I think it was a twelve day Canadian tour with the Violent Femmes. In all cases, there was a reason. I mean, the reason with the Violent Femmes was we'd just gotten back from I think five weeks out west. This was another Western tour. It was going to start in like five days. And then, you know, me being me, I was like, yeah, let's go. And the other guys were like, no, we can't do this. You know, so begrudgingly, we didn't. With the Bare Naked Ladies and Brian Adams, it was, we were very, we were very cognizant of trying to build what we were doing gradually and on our own terms. And so it was probably not a great decision, but. It was, it felt right to us at the time not to sort of go from playing Lee's Palace to all of a sudden be in stadiums. It felt like it was just like, we, our model of success was a guy like Billy Bragg. We wanted to play like 800 seat venues. And if we could do that every night, we would have been thrilled. And, you know, and in most, in, in many cases we did. So we weren't really, I don't know that lowest Lo ever, well, we did, we did, we played Thunderbird Stadium in Vancouver with Spirit of the West, which was great. I mean, it's, I mean. You you I mean and we played the amphitheater on the second the second time around, which was also great. But you know, I mean you can sort of adapt to any reality. What we wanted to be was in a place where you could have that immediate connection with the crowd and not feel like you're miles away from people. So, you know, I think the decisions were right for us. I don't think they were all the
0: right decisions though. Well, like you always say, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they famously say. Now, your relationship with your lowest low bandmate and co-founder, Ron Hawkins, has been up and down <laughs> and up and down <laughs> and up and down again. I know you have played together again in the recent past, so I feel relatively safe in asking, how is your relationship today? Yeah, quite good, you know. I mean, I think part of the success of Ron and I is,
1: is not being around each other every day. We I mean, we we love each other and uh we as you said, we did two tours last year that were like sort of just pure delight to go out and play you know but what was interesting about it we had built in a number of sort of older Lois low songs into the set and they were fun but i think right across the boards the most fun was playing on each other's newer stuff and sort of reinventing those songs um and also that tour included uh chris brown who was the producer of my last two records but also a like a musician beyond compare and uh, a songwriter as well so it was nice because we basically all, you know, you start off with something like that. Ron and I are very familiar with each other. We have a, we have a, we understand each other's musical language very clearly. I have a little bit of an insight into Chris because I've worked with him quite a bit in the last seven years, but when it came to his songs, there was a little bit of a, a learning curve and how to, how to, uh, you know, assimilate into those. Once that bridge was crossed, it just made for an amazing tour. Like we I remember a couple of the shows we did in Hamilton at the Mule Spinner were just to me, as good as anything I've ever done, because there's just such a, a, such a connection between the audience and the, and the players, but also such a connection between the three players. And it just, when that happens, you know, you ride the wave, but that's a real niche thing. It doesn't seem like something we'll do too much anymore. It feels like we kind of done what we were going to do if, unless we wanted to at some point make a record, which, um, right now, you know, as I sit here, I don't see that happening just because we've all got so many things going on ourselves. So.
0: That's well, great to hear. You can always go
1: home again, as they say. I guess, yeah. You know, well, you know, I mean, we we blew up the home three times, so I mean, it wasn't the same home we were going back to. But yeah, I mean, there were some there were some really rough years. I mean, there was like, you know, there were probably two periods, and there were one period of six years where we didn't speak a word to each other. And There was a lot of, you know, like I said, from, from talking about the early days, when you spend that much time with people, things are going to happen, and you know, it was often just by the seat of our pants we weren't touring in the lap of luxury we were always for the most part i think we did one tour in a tour bus but for the most part we were in vans and for the most part there were you know every tour would be some white knuckle ride where you felt like winter was going to take your life and you know it's like there's a lot of things about it that are fun the shows are amazing but you have so much time every day just to kill and you know it's tough
0: well, when you look back, so Shakespeare and My Butt from 1991, we're over 30 years later. I mean, it was a real rocket ship. You have yeah. called it both an albatross and a gold medal. What do you mean by that? And, and do you still feel that way today? I don't, you know, and I think that I said, I believe I said that when I was
1: still in the band, because uh, at that point, anyways, we were really about sort of moving on. And there was a need to play the older stuff. And I think I don't think I'm wired in the sense that I can play the same thing for 30 years and just kind of, you know, like I think Mick Jagger can get up and play Satisfaction tonight and we'll have the same energy and power, you know, behind it that he did the first time he performed it. And, you know, more power to him for being that wired that way. I think for me, I get bored. I think I got bored with the songs. And and after we did the 20th anniversary tour, which that was, was a, a complete delight, we kind of tried to extend it. And I remember the last show I did with the man, we were in Ottawa. And our manager hadn't booked hotels and something was going on in Ottawa. And first of all, I don't know why our manager didn't book hotels, which is ridiculous. But there was something going on in Ottawa. There was no rooms available. So we basically did sound check, And then we were just kind of hanging out in the streets of Ottawa for the show. Like couldn't have a shower, couldn't like lie down for an hour. And then went to the dressing room in the club. And the dressing room in the club was the club owner's weight room. I remember I'm sitting on a stack of like 25 pound weights. I'm like, this can't be where we end up after all these years. Like, it's just, it's, it's like, like, it's pretty humiliating. It's like, you know, I mean, the band had, band has pedigree. I think they've really locked into something good now where they're doing the right size venues and hopefully they're all having fun and they're making records, which is the same for me. I mean, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing on a smaller scale than lowest of the low was, but the satisfaction of the recording part of it and the writing part of it is off the scale for me. So, But yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, so the albatross part was needing to continually perform songs that maybe I didn't feel the same way about. And then the gold medal part is basically saying to yourself, you're an f- idiot because anybody, you know, most musicians I know would die for the chance to have an album that that landed that strong and seemingly
0: had legs that went on for years. Well... The legs continue to go yeah. because there is a brand new documentary out there which focuses on the story of the lowest of the low. It's called Subversives. Stephen, I have not seen it, but you are in it. Can you share a little about what this doc covers and your involvement in it? For sure. It it covers everything.
1: <laughs> it really is. It really is a complete history of the band. And it's a long documentary, um, you know, because of feeling, you know, like I... I really think I've uh, buried any external or internal hatchets that I was that I was carrying around as far as the band goes. And so I was happy to participate. I think I did four interviews. Um, Simon Head, who made the film, is a wonderful guy. And you just knew when you talked to him that his goal was to tell an honest story about what had happened. And I think, you know, I mean, I don't know that we get really down into the weeds. There's, there's, uh, there. You know, some of the more troubling things are alluded to for sure, but I think it's a nice take on what those years were for me and then what the band is doing now. So, you know, and people that, you know, I think it's really a, a probably a, a fan facing documentary. I don't know if it, I don't know if it uh, is something that anybody that doesn't love the band will, will get much out of. Maybe I'm not, that's really hard for me to say. There was a companion piece that um, Ron and I did uh, sit down and interview and we talked song by song through Shakespeare my butt. And over the course of the pandemic, I discovered that I had the original 24-track tapes in my basement. So they got rebaked and we were able to just sort of sit and go through the tracks like, uh, you know, like instrument by instrument. And I think we went in there thinking, oh, this will be cool because we're going to find all kinds of stuff that we left off the record or vocals that didn't work that we, that got cut. But we found one guitar solo that didn't make it on the record. So I think that was a a comment on what we were as a band at that point. We were really well rehearsed. We really had those songs down and we were incredibly efficient in what we put down on, on tape and the record is kind of what it is. And the nice thing is, um, I don't know what they're going to do with this, if anything at all, but Andy Koyama who originally produced the album took these tracks back and remixed it. And I've heard it and you know, it contemporizes it because it takes away all the sort of 90s, early 90s washy reverb that was always a bit troublesome on that record. But um, so it was nice to hear it that way. It's nice to hear it with a real kind of in-your-face mix. Um, and I hope they do something with it at some point because it, it's. Uh, I think people really like it. And, and I know part of the issue is I think Ron feels that they've, you know, dipped them, their toes in that well so many times that putting it out again is just like basically, you know, detrimental to the progress of the band which which may be true but anyways it was nice it was nice for me to hear that hear it hear it and go through that experience but the the companion piece is like a 1 hour thing you can find online where we talk solely about Shakespeare my button i thought
0: that was a really nice look at the history of the band that's great well it must be very validating for you and very gratifying as you say to realize hey everything we did made it in there and uh, still holds up today there was a real i mean way more organization than i thought i would have thought we'd had back then it was very precise if you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Stephen Stanley, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. we got Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan, Glass Tiger's Alan Fru, The Box's Jean-Marc Bissabia, Strange Advances, Drew Arnott, Men Without Hats, Ivan Dorischuk, and Crooner Matt Dusk. How They Did It, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts, or go to torontolegends.ca. So to move us forward, how did the lowest so of low finally end for you, and how did the Stephen Stanley band begin? Yeah, so you got a bit of a hint of that with,
1: with that 2013 show in Ottawa when I was sitting on a pile of uh, 25 pound weights. Um, that was that was part of it. There was a there was an argument that happened about making a. We were in the process of doing pre production on a on a record, and I think just things got out of hand and and things were said that. I wasn't happy about, and I felt it was, and you know, coupled with the idea that I I wasn't feeling it live anymore, I wasn't feeling, and I I had written a bunch of songs that ended up on my uh, first album with my new band, which is called Jimmy and the Moon, and I really felt like low the guys in the low weren't even interested in hearing them, and that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and because I knew they were good, and I, I knew they were they were worth they were worth uh, somebody you know, investing in. And then I realized that that was going to have to be me. So shortly after that, um, I'd been playing with Chris Bennett, who's the guitar player in my band for a, a few years prior to that in sort of various other projects. So we started to formalize that, brought a guy named Gregor Beresford, who was only on the first record and in on drums. And then, uh, first, at first uh, a guy named Kevin Lacroix was playing bass and he's an awesome musician and an awesome guy. And Right when we started with him, he got asked to play guitar in Ron Sexbeth's band, so he wasn't going to be available anymore from a timing perspective. So we uh, ended up with a landing with a guy named Chris Rellinger, who's been on both records. So yeah, that's kind of the—I mean, the, that's how it formed. And I think it really—and originally we carried a real lowest to low work ethic to it, and we rehearsed at least once a week every week. And I was writing a lot of songs, and we were going—we were adding them. And playing live a lot, and just trying to, you know, figure out what it was like to be a band. And I think, you know, it really changed for me when I started doing uh, solo and duo shows because then I then I started to get comfortable as a, a front person. I don't think I was at first. You know, it's so, it really is so different moving moving one position from the guy on the left to the guy in the middle. It really does change your perspective, and there's a whole different set of uh, parameters that you need to you need to follow to be good at that. And you know, I mean, I'm hoping I've gotten. I'm hoping I've gotten better. I've sure, I sure feel more comfortable now. I love the experience. I think I was a little bit daunting at first, but I love being there, and and I love connecting with people, and I love telling stories. So I love the whole idea of the banter that goes on inside of a show, and and I think it's built something that way.
0: Now, your new album is called "Before the Collapse of the Hive." I'm going to trust that you have done the research, Stephen. Neither of us are scientists, to my knowledge. What does "before the collapse of the hive" refer to? Well, in
1: in the research part of it, what it refers to is is um there's this period, you know you know that period in like I think it's maybe a bit later now, but it used to be like kind of the end of August. Now it's probably in September, where you just get these kind of wasps and bees. Just seem like they're like just going they're going nuts. They're like just flying around, and it it really is true. It's just before the whatever hive they've been a part of is, is about to come down and they're, it's kind of just the last gasp of life. And if, if they, if you get stung at that time of year, it's very random. Apparently it hasn't, doesn't have any purpose. They're not protecting anything. They're just kind of disoriented and trying to figure out your <laughs> third next move. They're quitting their band and moving to another wasp band. Um, so that's what it means in sort of the context of the song that it comes from, which is a song called Hornets. But, for me it became a line that really described everything that this album is, which is about, you know, the the world around us right now feeling really tenuous. And I really like the idea that it was before the collapse of the hive because that feels a little bit hopeful to me that there's maybe still a way out of out of uh what we're dealing with. I know it'd be easy to say that right now it doesn't feel that way, but uh but I think, you know, as long as we're still here and we can still talk about it, that there's still a chance that things can turn around. And you know, and I think a lot of my focus is is beyond my generation and on my daughter's generation and, and what we're leaving behind for them. And I, and I know my, my daughters are both very, uh, you know, cerebral and intellectual people and, and they're, they're having a hard time with it. It's just, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not great. It's not, I mean, you know, like, I think, I think we're robbing a lot of younger people of a real sort of pure childhood because there's just so much pressure in so many different ways that I don't think that I dealt with at that age I mean I know some people had a harder childhood than I did for sure but I've, I've kind of felt like my childhood was as it should be like as a you know being able to like I said go out and play road hockey and not really worry about too much else so
0: yeah well these are unprecedented times they're hmm. crazy times now Stephen you and I are both of a vintage when we remember when albums had a theme yeah do, do all 11 songs from this album tie together into a particular theme yeah, it's not a concept record, but I think both my
1: albums have sort of were loosely based around a theme. So there's a couple songs we left off, this record that will end up being a uh, part of an EP that we'll do in the new year. That, you know, to me, they they still support the idea, but they weren't exactly what I was trying to say. And I think that, you know, I mean, I, I think I fall into that ass backwards. Like, I don't think it was like, I didn't set out to say, I'm writing these 11 songs. It wasn't like a Pete Townsend thing where it's like we need a song that talks about Uncle Ernie. We just uh, it was just sort of eleven songs happened, and they all kind of felt like a part of some thematic thing. And then you know, there's a lot of grasping at straws from my point of view on, on that too, because I'll you know I'll put something on the record and, and kind of justify it by saying, well, yeah, this is kind of like this is kind of what I'm talking about. But I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter because like it's a collection of songs. To me, there's a thematic that runs through the record that really is based around that title, even that the title wasn't obvious to me right from the beginning. And it took a while to sort of arrive at that. When I did arrive at it, it was like, oh yeah, that's perfect. There's a song on the album called Straw Man that's really about, it fits the theme, but it's more about perspectives and how we're at a point in humanity where, you know, two groups of people can look at exactly the same thing and take something so completely different out of it. And I think that happened during the pandemic that's happening with American politics and that all to me is a precursor to before the hive collapses it's all something that you know we're we're hanging by a thread right now in so many ways and hopefully the thread is strong we can pull it back up but, but that remains to be seen I guess
0: now the late Dave Bookman mm-hmm. was well known in the GTA music scene by his nickname Bookie who was Dave Bookman and and what is the album relationship to the friendship you had with yeah. you? Uh, well, he was, it was
1: like my, one of my closest friends that I was a friendship that grew out of uh, his sort of early days love of lowest to the low that became, you know, I got to know him through doing interviews with him on the radio. And then uh, when the band, my band broke up in 95, he and I just formed a real, really tight friendship. And we spent a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, four in the mornings of sneaky D's eating, eating nachos and just getting to know each other that way. So he was a, he was a DJ. He was at CFMY he, and he moved on to eighty eight point one. And um, unfortunately, about six years ago, had an aneurysm and passed away. Uh, it was really sudden and really traumatic for a lot of people. It was beautiful to see how much he met to so many people in Toronto. Like I, mean, I think, I mean, I hope he had an inkling about that. I think there's no chance he knew the extent that. His uh, life had sort of resonated with so many people, like I just, I, I, mean, the days that followed that, I couldn't believe what I saw, and which included, um, his, um, personal record collection was sold at a uh, store. I think it, was, it wasn't Cops, on, uh, oh boy, I should remember this on, on on, um, Ossington. There's a record store, and his his personal album collection was sold there, and all the music went to Music Counts, which was a charity that he loved because it gave money to kids to play music he was a as about a good as good a person as you will find on this planet he really only gave love to his friends he had a really he had a really close group of friends um most of whom we we really didn't know each other he had like sort of one-on-one relationships with a lot of people and was as tight with them as he was with me and that discovery after he passed away was was additionally beautiful to the whole thing my publicist right now is, it was a woman a woman named Julie Booth was his really close friend as well and so we've had the last 6 years of commiserating you know just trying to figure out how you deal with losing somebody that you talk to every day and that's what that's was kind of a jumping off point for the theme of the record it was um he and I talked a lot about things we talked a lot about music but we talked a lot about life outside of music and um you know, all of a sudden that conversation just stopped. And, and you, it's not like, like we don't have a bullpen in, in life. You don't have somebody else sitting waiting. I'll just pull this person in now and have those same conversations. Like, you know, it's funny. I woke up in the middle of the night last night. We would always sort of tell each other these ridiculous jokes. And I woke up in the middle of the night last night with this thing that would have been exactly what I would have woken up this morning and told him. And it's, I don't know. I mean, everybody goes through this. I know it's. It just sucks. It sucks when it's so unexpected. We literally like 6 days before it happened, we were we went to see Jeff Tweedy and we were sitting in, in a Pizza Nova on King Street. And he was sort of he was like he was telling me about um like he was trying to talk about plans for like what happens afterwards and I was just kind of pushing him off. Like I was like, "Well, why are we talking about this? Like we're we're here, we're alive, everything's good." And you know, I don't know if he had some inkling of what was about to happen, or if, if if that's just an innate thing in people or whatever. But yeah, I miss him. And uh, you know, I'd, so like, I like this is a, it's weird because like I don't want anyone to feel like I'm sort of exploiting that relationship to pr- promote this record. But it is a record that a lot of the themes were written with him in mind. Two of the songs are directly about him, and he really was my you know my best friend, my sounding board. And you lose that, you're kind of like a bit of a rudderless person. So that's where we
0: are. Well, I think it's a great way to continue, you know, your memories of your friend and your relationship. Yeah. So I think it's it's great for that purpose. I understand that in addition to touring in Canada, you've also been touring both in the U.S. and Europe. Yeah, well, the, the last European tour was in 2018. So it's been a while now, but that was,
1: was again, like one of the most, we, we started at a, a festival in Germany and then, did shows in the UK and then about eight or nine shows in Ireland. And the hope is that we go back at some point in 2024 on this record. That's still very early in the planning stages. And I think, you know, everything to do with touring is h- harder now. But I think there's a possibility we will. I know there's a appetite in Ireland and in uh, Germany. And, and we're now signed to a label in the Netherlands. And I'm hoping that that becomes part of the equation as well. And if, if those things fall into place, then that's, that makes for a really good tour. And then the States, if you, we've done, uh, you know, I mean, I've done spot stuff all through, through my life. Lois Lo did. I've done some solo stuff there. Not as much as I'd like to, but I, I think um we did a couple of the BHS shows with Ron and Chris there as well. And uh, I hope we'll get back to at least Buffalo. And then Canada, I've done the last two summers we've, we've uh, toured in BC and BC in the Yukon with a guy from the States named Willie Nile who is an amazing, like, he's 70, he turned 75 this year. And I don't know you fight a different, a better person with as far as energy goes. He's just, he's just incredible. He's a lovely, loving guy, fantastic songwriter, uh, just a fantastic lyricist. And he lives in this sort of epic rock space that every song is an anthem and and the crowd responds in kind. So it was a pleasure playing for that crowd for the last two summers.
0: So I'm hoping we kind of, you know, parlay that into something of our own, too. Now, in the early days of playing live with The Lowest Low, you proudly attempted to never introduce a song the same way more than once. Do you still try to bring a unique intro to each of your songs coming from the Stevens Band? It's, it's a point of, like, it's something that I beat myself up about
1: because, like, there's, 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 there are stories that are connected to certain songs that you can only reinterpret so many different ways. So I try. Sometimes there's a similarity. I usually, I usually will judge it now based on where are we playing. Like if it's a crowd that's seen it before, I try to do something different. But you know, yes, you're right. There, that was like I don't know why that happened in Lowest and Low, and you get an education because like when we got a chance to sort of play multiple shows with bands like the Cadillac Tramps or with uh with Billy Bragg you realize like, that the banter, albeit it sounds completely fresh and completely inspired, is incredibly rehearsed. But I remember we would come off stage after a lowest low show if somebody had said something that got said the night before. Because sometimes something happens at a show where you you make some comment and you're like, oh my God, that's gold. You got to say that again. You'd come off stage and the rest of the band would be like, what was that all about? No, you can't. What, what are you doing? You're, you're embarrassing us. And like, well, no, 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 the people here tonight didn't see us last night. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so yeah, we had a big thing about not, not repeating ourselves ever. And I think it made for, it, it wasn't so much a rule as it just was a, a, an attempt to make every show really spontaneous. And it really was. There was a real, the, the energy and things that would happen on stage with Lois Lowe didn't repeat themselves. It was just kind of a free for all every night, except for the
0: songs themselves. But even that was pretty free form. Well, as noted, you were touring extensively and you were really big in certain regional pockets. Why were the lowest low so particularly popular in Buffalo, New York? Oh, well, I mean, it was, it started
1: with radio uh, for sure. Like, I mean, and there, th- that was at a point where I think all they had there as far as radio went was really classic rock. So CFMY was playing into Buffalo and capturing a hundred percent of an audience that was of the age that we were, which was and a little bit younger. So the first time we went there, we played at a place called Nietzsche's, which to me probably, if if it had three hundred people in it, it would be packed. They put six hundred people in the room that night, and like we didn't know what to make of it. Like like we were like we'd never been to Buffalo before. Those were days when crossing the border wasn't as big a deal. It became a huge deal, as you know afterwards. And like to this to to this day, now it's almost prohibitive how much it costs, like for a band of my size, you know, I've got a I have a, a permit for the uh, year that ends in May. So I've got to I've got to get down there and do a couple of shows before that that expires because it's just too expensive otherwise. And then as a as we've been talking about, we were a good live band. And I think it resonated. And I think the the funniest part about it is that the songs that were really about Toronto resonated with people in Buffalo. I think they're the thematics I think there's a a theme of the working-class part of both these cities that really, you know, is universal.
0: Well, it makes sense. We have to go to Buffalo to watch our Leafs play, so it would make yes. sense to go to Buffalo to see Lois Lowe. Now, Stephen, when you talk about Toronto neighborhoods, Yorkville is certainly well-known. Mm. Apparently, you feel that the connections of your grandfather's Yorkville job location to Neil Young may explain your destiny to become a singer So that's part of my on-stage stories that I try to
1: connect my grandfather indeed worked um, he was uh, he was a banker and was diagnosed with cancer in the early 60s and was laid off by the Bank of Montreal and decided he wasn't going to just sort of do nothing to finish off his life and uh, you know I've been thinking about that part and I gotta I gotta hit my dad dad up with some questions My dad's a very silent man doesn't talk much about this stuff but I want to find out because I like the idea that my grandfather being quite ill went and got a job, I started to realize, oh, it might've just been out of necessity. Like might've been out of like a financial necessity to keep working. So he was working as a sporting goods in a sporting goods store as a clerk and a night clerk. And he, the store was downstairs and upstairs was a uh, club called the minor bird a coffee house. And that's where Rick James and Neil Young did their first shows in Toronto together. And in the band called the minor Birds. I know this because my, uh, my dad's younger sister and her husband would go down and see these shows and would visit her dad, after the show or during the show. And, you know, I like the idea. I like the idea. You know, I mean, I've only seen pictures of my grandfather, and I guarantee you he was not a fan of Neil Young. But the idea that he was working under Neil Young, well, uh, this was all going down. So my my tenuous grasp of the connection is that's my, that's my foray into music, was my grandfather being under Neil Young's feet as they were stomping
0: on the floor. And finally, under the Lessons Learned section, if a weed smoking session goes badly, is yogurt really the answer?
1: <laughs> Where are you get these stories from? <laughs> oh man, that is so true. That's funny because like I didn't even know that, that story was out there, but that's awesome because like that's totally true. It was a it was a it was a gig in Saskatoon. No, it was in, I was in Regina actually, and uh, the show was over, and somebody had given our road manager um, some marijuana. This was the nineties. Was still illegal then, and Dave, the drummer, and I smoked it, and both went into like sort of like this sort of overdrive. And Dave was like, "Oh, I I know what to do." And we we go to the variety store that's open twenty four hours, and we each get a tub of yogurt, and it didn't do anything. Surprisingly, doctors don't recommend this.
0: (laughs) Not recommended by nine out of ten doctors. Oh man, I actually ended up in the hospital because I did, and it, the
1: the cure was literally like I think acetaminophen, where it it slowed my heart down because I, I went into some sort of AFib situation because it it was a it was hydroponic and it was must have been laced with something because like we didn't even I mean I think we just had like, like a couple of hits of it and we were just like toast oh, like it was really scary, but yeah, so you're, <laughs> I was not fired it. Where did you get that one from? Where's where did you, where did you read it?
0: All good things come from the source. Okay. You, uh, you you you've told it elsewhere and I uh, picked up That's on it, awesome. so good that it can live on but, uh, Stephen, I want to give a shout out to Christian Noel Peterson yeah. and his 15th annual Christmas album, Christmas Around Town. Christian was recently on this podcast, and I understand you had Christian on your radio show, not yeah, he played. he's on this week's show, actually, because
1: this is my annual Christmas show, and so... I, I've not met him in person yet, and we've we've talked a little bit every year because uh, he makes a Christmas record every year. And these this is not throwaway stuff; these are like really well written songs. And he's working with the Curry brothers, that are two of like literally my favorite players in the in the province of Ontario. Like they, uh, Rob Curry is a guitarist at beyond beyond most as far as the quality of notes he chooses and what he plays. And, and Andrew is is brilliant on a number of instruments. And Sean William Clark's involved in that too. It's just all kinds of people that I know really well and love. So at some point we're going to, we're going to have to meet, but I love Christmas music and the Chris, my Christmas show every year is my favorite show. And for some reason that I can't explain, I've never written a Christmas song in my life. Like my, I grew up on the best of the best. My dad's vinyl collection uh, of of Christmas music is unsurpassed. Like it, So I've been around it my whole life. I crave it during the Christmas season and I love doing the Christmas show. So having a a tenuous connection to somebody that is that steeped in it, I just like, I marvel at it. Like I want to know what the secret sauce is. I'd
0: like to write one. (laughs) That's great. Well, you put it on your to-do list. Yeah, sure. sure. So again, the new album from the Stephen Stanley Band is Before the Collapse of the Hive. And you can go to StephenStanleyBand.com for more info. Now, is it all hands on deck to promote the new album, or are you already working on what's next? Yo, know, it's all
1: hands on deck right now. Yeah, what's next is kind of you know I mean, I'm i not totally sure what's next, but as far as another record, but there's for sure the songwriting part. There's there's already songs, and I'm not focused too much on them. I, I've I think they've all been played once or twice live, but I'm not I'm I'm really kind of focusing on the the new record. We're gonna do an EP in the in the spring. And with some extra songs that that weren't on the record, and then we'll see what happens after that. You know, I got to say, it's a real, it's for anybody that's putting out an album like you know, major kudos because it's not, it's not easy, and it's not financially easy. And if you're completely indie like I am, and it, and everything's sort of coming from you, I did an Indiegogo campaign and got amazing support, like unbelievable support. Still, you know a lot of a lot of it's out of pocket because there's just the expenses and trying to put a record out are are huge when you're manufacturing and you know, complain, complain, complain. I'm not complaining. It's a it's a it's all a privilege that I'm happy to that I'm still able to do it. But big kudos to anybody that puts out an independent album because it's uh there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that nobody realizes and it's really a trial and tribulation. So yeah, my focus is there right now. Sometime in the new year it'll switch to something else and i'm not sure what something else will be i don't know i don't know if i see myself going down this road again with i mean i definitely see myself making music it might just be more make it put it out on the social platforms and let it
0: leave it leave it be and then move on so we'll see as you say enjoy the current album yeah exactly are you on social media steve yes do you like your fans to follow you anywhere in particular most of, most of the stuff I do is Facebook and Instagram. I, I
1: bowed out of uh, Twitter or whatever it's called now. X. That just was a little bit. It was too much of a, a horrible experience reading stuff on there. I, I can't I can't look away from stuff like that. So the train wrecks. So I got I just decided to let it go. So Facebook and um,
0: and Instagram. Excellent. Well, it was a real pleasure to meet you and to hear all the stories behind everything you're working on. And looks like you made a nice transfer to Wolf Island. So I want to wish you continued success. Thanks, Andrew. It was great talking to you today. appreciate it. It was my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Stephen Stanley, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast.
1: and at naturalmanpodcast.com.
0: I'm Andrea Askowitz, And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com and listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.